Section 15 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4, Italy and Her Invaders, by Stanley Leaths, Part 4. The first impulse of the proud republic was to bow before the storm. France was allowed to occupy Bergamo and Brescia, Crema and Cremona, almost unopposed. The vis domino, whom the signoria had some years before set up at Ferrara as a mark of suzerainty, was driven out. The restitution of the towns of Romagna and other concessions were offered to the Pope, and, shortly afterwards, the Romagna was actually evacuated. Verona, Vicenza, and Padua were allowed to give themselves up to emissaries, real or pretended, of the emperor. Treviso was still held, but the recent conquests to the east of Venice were given up. The towns in Apulia were abandoned. Meanwhile, every effort was made to strengthen the narrower line of defense. Fresh troops were raised and money and stores collected, while, on the other hand, attempts were made to open negotiations with the Allies severally and especially with the Pope. Maximilian had appeared at Trent in June, but as his forces were slow in collecting, the Venetians felt strong enough in July to re-establish themselves in Padua, which was made as strong as possible. Thus, when at length, in August, he was ready to move, the first thing necessary was the recapture of this fortress city. Supported by 500 French lances under La Palice, and an army that seemed to contemporaries nothing less than prodigious, he sat down to besiege the town in the middle of August. The hostility of the peasantry, whose hearty loyalty furnishes the best testimonial to Venetian good government, caused him much difficulty and his heavy guns were not in position till the middle of September. Dissensions arose among the Allies. La Palice was on the worst of terms with Maximilian's chief military adviser, Constantin Areniti. A famous legend represents Bayard himself and the French men-at-arms as unwilling to go to the assault on foot unless accompanied by the German nobles and gentlemen who declined to derogate so far. Finally, the siege was given up on October 2. Soon afterwards, the emperor took his departure to the Tyrol, the French retired into the Milanese, and the pope withdrew his men. Vicenza speedily returned to Venetian rule, and Verona alone of the more important places remained in imperial hands. In February 1510, the Venetians at length came to terms with the Pope. His conditions were hard, but they were accepted. Venice recognized in full the immunities of the clergy and the papal right to provide to all Venetian benefices, renounced all unauthorized treaties concluded with towns in the papal states, abandoned all intention of appealing to a council against the papal bans, and conceded free navigation of the Adriatic to all papal subjects, among whom Ferrara was expressly included. 
In return, the Pope admitted the humble request of the Republic for pardon and promised his good offices in future. The Venetians were allowed to recruit in the Papal States, where they engaged several famous condottieri, among others Giampaolo Baglione and Renzo Daceri. Thus, the first aim of Julius was secured. He had humiliated the Queen of the Adriatic and recovered all rights usurped by Venice from the Holy See. He was now at liberty to turn his attention to his second object, the expulsion from Italy of the barbarians, in the first place of the French. For this purpose, he hoped to win the aid of the Emperor and of Henry VIII. But abundant patience was needed before this could be brought about. The first effect of the Pope's change of policy was, rather, to increase the bitterness of Maximilian against the Venetians, so that he tried to induce the Turk to attack them. With the king of Aragon, Julius was not at first much more successful. Ferdinand accepted the investiture of Naples, but showed no inclination to an open breach with the League. There remained the Swiss. The Swiss were poor and ignorant, their general diet ill-instructed and impotent, their leading men needy and venal, their common men ready to follow any liberal recruiting officer, and even the cantonal governments lacked coercive force. Thus the fine military qualities so often displayed by them in these wars had hitherto served only to win the mercenaries' pittance. French victories would have been impossible without Swiss aid. French disasters had fallen mainly on the Swiss, but latterly they had risen to a higher sense of their own value. Their arrogant behavior and exorbitant demands had begun to fatigue the French paymaster. Relations, which had never been easy, had now become decidedly unfriendly, for the French king had refused the Swiss terms and discharged his unruly levies, intending in future to draw his infantry from Germany, the Grisons and the Valais. Moreover, the Ten Years' Treaty of 1499 had run to a close, and Louis showed no great eagerness for its renewal. Already, in 1506-7, the Emperor had tried to shake the Franco-Swiss alliance, and lavish expenditure had been needed to neutralize his influence. For the expedition against Imperial Genoa, it had been necessary first to hoodwink, afterwards to ignore the Swiss authorities. The Swiss, who fought at Agnadello, were illicit volunteers. It was the task of Julius to turn Swiss dissatisfaction to his own ends, and for this purpose he had an admirable instrument in Matthaus Schinner, Bishop of Sion. A man of energy and ambition, plausible and energetic, the enemy of France, Schinner was early in 1510 set to win the cantons and the Diet for the Pope, and a defensive alliance was concluded. In July, the Diet was asked to give effect to this agreement by assisting the Pope in the invasion of Ferrara, which persisted in hostility against Venice. To comply was an act of open hostility to France, the ally of Ferrara. Moreover, Ferrara could only be reached 
through Milanese territory. However, the influence of Schinner prevailed, and 10,000 men set out. The Diet still hesitated. French gold was at work. Chamon d'Ambois was prepared to resist any attack on the Milanese. The Swiss, without artillery and scant of victual, did not venture to advance beyond the land which lies between Como and the Lago Maggiore. In all their movements, they were closely followed by the French, and, finally, they were forced to retire without having effected anything, September. During the winter, negotiations proceeded between the Pope and the Swiss, the latter pressing in vain for the pay of the troops supplied. Meanwhile, the offers of the King of France were met by the determined opposition of the forest cantons, whose antagonism to the French was growing, increased by measures directed against their trade with Milan. Maximilian, on the other hand, succeeded in concluding, February 1511, a defensive treaty with a majority of the cantons in favor of his Duchy of Austria and his County of Burgundy. Thus, the greatest powers of Europe were treating as equals with the League of Peasants and Burghers. Meanwhile, in the war, France had held her own. An attack by sea and land on Genoa failed ignominiously. The efforts directed by Julius against Ferrara led only to the capture of Modena. Nor did Louis despise ecclesiastical weapons. A synod of French clergy at Tours, September 1510, declared the king justified in making war on the Pope in defense of his states and his allies, and called for the summons of a general council. Embarking on this plan with the support of the emperor, the king was able to attract five cardinals to his side, who, not long after, issued an invitation to a general council to be held at Pisa in September 1511. Pressing on at the same time in arms, Chaumont d'Ambois threatened Bologna, where the Pope lay ill. The danger was extreme, but the unconquerable vigor of the Pope and opportune assistance from Venice averted the worst. Having repulsed the French, the Pope urged forward his schemes against Ferrara. Taking the field himself in the snows of winter, he occupied Concordia and besieged and took Mirandola, January 1511. There, his successes stopped. Trivulzio, who assumed the command after the death of Chaumont, February 1511, recovered Concordia and Mirandola, and in May, Bologna was abandoned to him. The Pope retired to Ravenna. Misfortune brought with it dissension. The Pope's nephew and commander-in-chief, the Duke of Urbino, charged by the Pope's favorite, Cardinal Aledosi, legate of Bologna, with the blame for the loss of that city and, unable to get support from his uncle, fell upon his accuser and slew him. The Pope's fortunes were at their lowest ebb, but his will was unshaken. Returning to Rome, he met the hostile summons to a general council by summoning a council of his own to meet at the Lateran in April 1512. For material help, 
he turned to Spain, but in the crisis of discussion fell sick almost to death. Baffling his enemies by a complete recovery, he fortified himself against them by concluding with Venice and Spain in October 1511 the Holy League for the recovery of all papal territory. It was soon afterwards joined by Henry VIII. The Swiss also aided the papal plans while making war for the first time on their own behalf. The failure of 1510 still rankled, and the commercial hostility of the forest cantons, together with the hope of Milanese booty, predisposed not only the soldiers of fortune, but also the governments to warlike action. A grievance of Schweiz, having been lightly treated by Louis, the Schweizers took up arms November 1511 and summoned their allies. The call was obeyed, and towards the end of the month, troops were collecting on the old marshalling ground between the lakes. Venetian aid was solicited and promised. Gaston de Foix, now governor of Milan, was menaced at the same time on the side of Parma and Bologna. With the scanty forces at his disposal, he could only impede, not prevent, the advance of the enemy towards Milan. But there the Swiss successes ended. They were unable to undertake the siege of Milan. No help came from Venice or the Pope, and the invaders were obliged to retreat, which they did in great disorder. In spite of this second rebuff, the opening months of 1512 saw once more the King of France and the other powers competing for the favor of the Swiss. The King of France was unable to satisfy their inordinate demands, yet his need of an ally was extreme. The English and the Spaniards were threatening an invasion of France. Brescia and Bergamo had been recovered by Venice, January 1512. The forces of the Holy League were menacing Ferrara and Bologna. Maximilian was vacillating, and in April concluded a truce with the Pope and Venice. Momentary relief was brought by the brilliant and brief career of Gaston de Foix, Duke of Nemours. Early in the year 1512, the young general repulsed a dangerous attack of the Allied forces directed against Bologna and, on hearing of the fall of Brescia, he at once withdrew from Bologna all the forces that could be spared, crossed the Mantuan lands without leave, met and defeated Giampaolo at Isola della Scala, and in nine days presented himself before Brescia, assaulted, captured, and sacked the city. But in view of Maximilian's change of front, it was urgent to achieve some still more notable success before the Germans serving in the French army might be withdrawn. Having in vain endeavored to induce the Spanish viceroy Ramon de Cardona to give battle in the Romagna, Gaston marched against Ravenna and assaulted the town. To save this important place, the forces of the League approached and entrenched themselves to the south of the Ronco, during the night of the 10th of April, Gaston threw a bridge over the river, and on the following morning, Easter Day, he led his troops across and attacked the position of his enemies. 
they were strongly fortified. On the left, they were protected by the river, while their front was covered by a line of armed wagons guarded by the infantry of Pedro Navarra. The engagement opened with an artillery duel, which lasted some time without conspicuous result, until Alfonso d'Este, seeing an opportunity, led round his excellent and mobile artillery and directed it against the enemy's flank. The fire proved so galling that the Italian men-at-arms left their breastworks to attack the French. After the hand-to-hand -hand engagement had begun between the cavalry on both sides, the Germans attacked the Spanish infantry behind their wagon wall, and a desperate battle resulted in a French victory. The Italian men-at-arms were defeated and broken, and Fabrizio Colonna was captured, but the Spanish infantry withdrew in good order. The French commander, rashly charging with a few horsemen on a body of Spanish foot, who were retreating along a causeway, was unhorsed and killed. Eve d'Alegre also perished in the encounter. Navarra was a prisoner. Ramon de Cardona escaped by flight. The complete victory and the capture of Ravenna on the following day were dearly bought by the loss of so vigorous a leader as Gaston de Foix. La Palice, who found himself by seniority in the chief command, was not qualified to make the most of a great victory or to impose his authority on his motley army. The Pope amused the king with insincere negotiations while pressing on the work of military reconstruction and encouraging, with Venetian help, a fresh invasion of the Swiss. Unable to induce Venice to buy peace from the emperor by the cession of Verona and Vicenza, Julius yet succeeded in procuring for her a truce. The Swiss, who began to move in May, were allowed free passage through Tyrol towards Verona. In May, the adhesion of Maximilian to the League was proclaimed, though prematurely, by Julius, and in June, the German infantry was ordered to leave the French army. The Council of Pisa had been a complete failure, and when removed to Milan, fared no better. The Lateran Council, which met in May 1512, though at first attended mainly by Italians, had far more of the appearance and of the inner conviction of authority. The pressure which, after Ravenna had appeared so urgent that there had been talk of bringing Gonzalo into the field as chief commander of the Holy League, was relaxing. The French were without a consistent policy. La Palice was first recalled to Milan and then ordered into the Romagna to strike, if possible, a decisive blow. Part of his troops had been disbanded for financial reasons. Others had been sent home. His enterprise in the Romagna could hardly have succeeded, but while yet on the way he was recalled for the defense of Milan. The Swiss Diet had in April determined to act in concert with the League. The effort which followed was national and imposing. The Swiss army, not less than 20,000 strong, was mustered at Chur, and thence made its way by different paths to Trent, where Venetian emissaries welcomed them. 
the Spanish and papal army was advancing to occupy Rimini, Cesena, Ravenna, and threatening Bologna. The Venetian forces joined the Swiss at Villafranca in the Veronese, after Schinner had with difficulty dispelled the suspicions and satisfied the demands of these dangerous allies. La Palice had garrisoned the most important places and lay in the neighborhood ready to repeat the defensive strategy which had proved so useful in 1510 and 1511. But his forces were insufficient, and on his retiring to Cremona, they were still further diminished by the loss of 4,000 Landsnecht, withdrawn by the emperor's command. Thence La Palice fell back to Pizzighettoni and again to Pavia, whence, a few days after the arrival of the enemy on the 14th of June, he again retreated, not without difficulty. Hereupon, the French, abandoning all further resistance, made for the Alps. Meanwhile, Trivulzio had evacuated Milan. Only the castles of Milan, Cremona, and Brescia, and the Lanterna of Genoa were still in French hands. It remained to dispose of the conquered territory. Julius recovered without difficulty Ravenna, Bologna, and the rest of the Romagna. His commander, the Duke of Urbino, easily occupied Reggio and Modena, though Alfonso d'Este refused any settlement that would deprive him of Ferrara. The Congress of Allies, which met at Mantua in August, made over to the Pope Parma, and Piacenza, to which he had at best a shadowy claim. The emperor and Ferdinand would have been glad to give Milan to their grandson Charles, but the Swiss were in possession, and, supported by the Pope, made their will good. The duchy was given to Massimiliano Sforza, son of Ludovico, who, in return, ceded Locarno, Lugano, and Domo d'Ossola, to his Swiss protectors. The Venetian claims were left unsettled. Brescia still held out. The Swiss claimed Cremona and the Ghiara d'Adda for the duchy. The emperor demanded Vicenza and Verona. Florence, who in 1509 had ended her long war by the recovery of Pisa, was punished for her support of France by the restoration of the Medici, effected by the arms of Ramon de Cardona and with the consent of the Pope. Julius's policy had reached a point of triumph. Much had been done for Rome, and something for Italy, but much yet remained to do before the barbarians could be expelled. The complicated problems had not been solved, and before Julius's death in February 1513, new difficulties had arisen. In order to secure the recognition of his Lateran council by Maximilian, Julius had to make at least a show of sacrificing Venice, who obstinately refused to give up Vicenza and Verona. The new League of Pope and Emperor, compacted in November 1512, was bound to suggest the reconciliation of Venice and France, and before the year was out, Overtures were made, which, in March 1513, led to a renewal of the Franco-Venetian League. On the other hand, the question of Ferrara was not decided, 
and imperial rights conflicted with papal pretensions in Parma and Piacenza, Modena and Reggio. The advance of the Spanish army into Lombardy and its occupation of Brescia threatened Italian freedom in every direction. The Swiss had been called into Milan as deliverers. They remained as masters. These problems were bequeathed by Julius to his successor, Giovanni de' Medici, Leo X. During the period of the Swiss conquest of Milan, Louis had been in great straits. The English had landed at Guipuscoa to join with the Spaniards in invading France, and although the only result was the conquest of Navarre, the danger had been serious. The retirement of the English and a truce with Ferdinand on the Pyrenean frontier relieved the French king and the Venetian alliance gave him strength. With the Swiss it was impossible to come to terms, but the dissatisfaction of the Milanese with the costly, oppressive, and disorderly rule of the Swiss, complicated as it was by the collateral authority of the emperor's commissioners and of the Spanish viceroy, made the king hopeful of support in the duchy. In April, the army of France, strengthened by a powerful force of Lansnecht, recruited in the emperor's despite, was ready to cross the Alps under Louis de la Tremouille and Trivulzio. The Gulf party rose to receive them. In May, the Venetian army under Alviano, now at length released, began to advance and occupied the country to Cremona. The French party was set up in Genoa by the aid of a French fleet. Cardona remained inactive at Piacenza. At the end of the month, only Novara and Como remained faithful to Sforza. On the 3rd of June, the French army lay before Novara, which was held by the Swiss. After a fruitless attack on the town, the French withdrew to Trecate, a place in the neighborhood. Meanwhile, Swiss reinforcements had reached Novara, and on the 6th of June, the whole force swarmed out to attack the French. Advancing under cover of a wood, they surprised the French outposts. When serious business began, the Swiss foot, unsupported by horse and artillery, carried the day by sheer force and fury. It is said that 8,000 fell on the side of the French, although the pursuit was ineffective for lack of horse. All the artillery and stores fell into the hands of the Swiss. Thus, Milan was once more lost and won. The French retreated hastily by Vercelli, Souza, and the Montchenis. The power of Massimiliano, or rather of the Swiss, was easily restored throughout the duchy. The Venetians fell back, and their recent conquests were reoccupied by Cardona, and the imperial troops who inflicted on them a serious defeat. But no combination of disasters could bend the Signoria to accept the emperor's terms. French prestige was low in 1513. Henry VIII routed the famous French cavalry at Guinegast and captured Terouin. The Swiss invaded Burgundy with imperial aid, and La Tremouille was forced to ransom the province and its capital 
by the promise to surrender Milan and pay 400,000 crowns. The refusal of Louis to ratify this bargain hardly improved the situation. But towards the end of the year, he recovered the papal friendship by recognizing the Lateran Council and abandoning the schismatic cardinals. The remainder of his reign, until his death in January 1515, was spent in preparations, military and diplomatic, for the recovery of his lost position in Europe. Various marriage arrangements were mooted, of which only one came into effect, the third marriage of Louis with Mary, the sister of Henry VIII. The alliance with Venice was maintained. With the rest of the European powers, a relation ensued of precarious hostility, tempered by more or less insincere offers of friendship. Thus the accession of Francis of Angoulême found France prepared for war, and secured at least on the side of England. The gallant young king was eager for the paths of glory. His enemies made ready to receive him. Ferdinand, the Swiss, and Maximilian, with unequivocal hostility. The Pope prepared to accept a profitable compromise. But Francis could not pay Leo's price, which was nothing less than Naples for Giuliano de' Medici. Thus, of the Italian powers, Venice alone stood on his side. The lack of Swiss foot soldiers was supplied partly by German levies, partly by recruits raised by Pedro Navarra, who had entered French service on the frontiers of France and Spain. The ordonances were raised to 4,000 lances. Genoa was ready to join the French, and the Swiss, alarmed by rumors, sent a considerable reinforcement into Milan, which was employed to occupy Susa and the Alpine passes. In June and July, a further and larger contingent entered the Milanese. Lack of pay and provision soon made itself felt to the damage of discipline and goodwill. However, the promise of papal and Florentine help eased the situation. At length, in August, the French army, more powerful than any that had been hitherto raised in these wars, was ready to move. To avoid the passes held by the Swiss, Trivulzio led the bulk of the army by an unknown road over the Col d'Argentier, while another force advanced by the Maritime Alps towards Genoa. The French vanguard, surprised by their unexpected arrival, a body of Italian horse under Prospero Colonna, whom they defeated and captured at Villafranca near Saluzzo. The Swiss, surprised and disconcerted, short of pay and provisions, mistrustful of their allies, determined to retreat by Ivrea to Vercelli and wait for reinforcements. Here, Disunion and divergent councils led to further undecided and unconcerted movements and left the way open to the French, who only at Novara met some slight resistance. But reinforcements came across the Alps, and at the beginning of September, considerable bodies of Swiss lay at Domodossola, Varese, and Monza. 
unable to agree on any plan for joint action or even for concentration. Meanwhile, negotiations were in progress at Gallerate, the French showing themselves ready to make considerable money grants and offering Sforza compensation in France. On the 9th of September, an agreement was actually sealed. Foremost among the peace party were the towns of Bern, Freiburg, and Solothurn, but the army, now at length partly concentrated at Monza, was ill-satisfied with the terms, and especially the men of Uri, Schweiz, and Glarus. These determined to reject the treaty and move on Milan, where the party favorable to France had recently been overthrown. At this moment, the distribution of the various forces was as follows. The French lay at Binasco, the Swiss at Monza, Alviano near Cremona, Cardona with the Spanish, and Lorenzo de' Medici with the papal army near Piacenza. Cardona and Lorenzo, with good reason, mistrusted each other and were mistrusted by the Swiss. But the latter were at length determined by the influence of Schinner to reject all overtures for peace and advance against the enemy. On the 10th of September, the Swiss army was in Milan. Meanwhile, the French army had moved to a position south-southeast of Milan, near Marignano, in order to be in easier touch with Alviano, who had occupied Lodi. The Swiss were still undecided and discordant. Schinner and the enemies of peace built their hopes on the effects of a casual encounter, which actually took place on September 13, and precipitated a general engagement. The forest cantons led the way to the attack. The others followed, not altogether willing. The French lay encamped along the road from Milan to Marignano. The front lay near San Donato, the rear guard between San Giuliano and Marignano. The camp was strongly fortified, and the land on each side of the road made difficult by irrigation canals. The attack began late in the day. The French vanguard, in spite of the damage caused by their artillery, was thrown into some confusion, and the Landsknecht were broken. Then the center received the assault, but withstood it. Night fell upon the combatants, and the struggle was renewed with earliest dawn. Order had been, in some measure, restored. It was, indeed, a battle of the giants. The Swiss held their own before the repeated charges of the heavy-armed French horse, and had developed a formidable flank attack on the French rear guard. Secure of victory, they had sent a detachment to break down a bridge in the enemy's rear, when Alviano came up with a part of the Venetian horse, and, as much by the morale as by the material effect of his arrival, restored the tottering fortunes of the French. Towards midday, the defeated army withdrew in good order with its wounded towards Milan. The pursuit was not vigorous, for the victors were exhausted, and their losses, if not so heavy as those of the Swiss, were serious. Two days after the fight, the Swiss started for home, since no money was forthcoming for their needs. They made their retreat by Como, 
harassed by Venetian Stradiots. The success of Francis was complete. Cardona withdrew to Naples. The Pope began to treat. The Swiss, though the forest cantons were opposed to peace, were sick of a league which had left all the hard work to them and did not even supply the sinews of war. Sforza surrendered the castles of Milan and Cremona and became a pensioner of France. In December, the Pope and King met in Bologna, and conditions were arranged which restored peace between the Holy See and the Most Christian King. But the claims of Venice still presented difficulties, and Maximilian could not acquiesce in the occupation of Milan. The Swiss League was seriously divided. Eight cantons were ready for a peace, even for a league with France, but five were eager to renew the struggle. With the aid of these latter, Maximilian invaded Milan in March 1516, but the Swiss were unwilling to fight against their countrymen in French service, and finally the imperial host broke up. In November, the whole Swiss League concluded an everlasting peace with Francis. Early in the same year, Ferdinand had died, and his successor Charles was not for the present ready to take up his heritage of hostility to France. So, at Noyon, it was arranged between Charles and Francis to dispose of Naples by way of marriage, August 1516, and at length, in December, the emperor made terms at Brussels which closed the war of Cambrai by a precarious truce. Soon after, Verona was restored to Venice, who had in the interval conquered Brescia. Here we may halt, while war is hushed a while, to glance at the results of all these years of strife. France is established temporarily in Milan, Spain more lastingly in Naples. The extent of the papal possessions has been increased, and the papal rule therein has been made firmer and more direct. A close alliance between the papacy and the interests of the Medici family has been established. Venice has recovered all her territory, though the sacrifices of the war and the shifting of trade routes will prevent her from ever rising again to her former pride of place. The short-lived appearance of the Swiss among the great and independent powers of Europe is at an end. The international forces of the West have assumed the forms and the proportions that they are to retain for many years to come. Little has been accomplished to compensate for all this outpouring of blood and treasure. The political union of the Italian nation is as far removed as ever. Misfortune has proved no cure for moral degeneration. Little patriotism worthy of the name has been called out by these cruel trials. The obstinate resistance of Pisa, the steadfastness and endurance of Venice, show local patriotism at its best, but Italian patriotism is far to seek. Though almost every province of Italy has been devastated in its turn, though many flourishing cities have been sacked, and the wealth of all has been drained by hostile or protecting armies, literature, learning, and art 
do not appear at first to feel the blight. The age of the war of Cambrai is also the age of Bramante, Michelangelo, and Raphael. Julius II is not only the scourge of Italy, but the patron of art. The greatest, or at least the most magnificent age of Venetian art, is the age of her political and commercial declension. The vigorous vitality that had been fostered in half a century of comparative peace served to sustain the Renaissance movement through many years of war and waste. Peace multiplies wealth, and art is the foster child of wealth, but wealth is not its true parent. No statistician's curve can render visible the many causes of the rise and fall of art. The definite decline, which is perceptible after the sack of Rome, may be due in part to economic changes and those to the influence of war, but its fundamental causes are spiritual and moral and elude all material estimation. As a chapter in military history, the period is full of interest. The individual heroism of panoplied knights still plays its part amid the shock of disciplined armies at Novara or at Marignano. Yet, in all the battles and campaigns, we see the tactics and strategy of infantry working towards a higher evolution, in which Swiss and German and Spaniard each bears his part. Hand firearms, though constantly employed, seldom appear to influence results. On the other hand, at Ravenna, the skillful use of artillery determined for the first time the issue of an important battle. And the art of military engineers, especially that of mining, shows considerable advance. War plays its part in promoting the intercourse of nations and in spreading the arts of peace. Captive Italy made her domination felt not only in France, but also in Germany and Spain. But apart from this meager and indirect result, we look in vain for any of the higher motives or tendencies that sometimes direct the course of armies and the movement of nations. Greed, ambition, the lust of battle, the interests of dynasties, such are the forces that seem to rule the fate of Italy and Europe. Yet, amidst this chaos of blind and soulless strife, the scheme and equilibrium of the Western world is gradually taking shape. End of section 15. Recording by Linda Johnson.